Welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find Malachi together with me. Uh, by way of introduction here in the book of Malachi, we've moved in this book really to the last, um, the last two things that Malachi is going to say. We'll finish that today and we'll finish that next week. But the, really the latter uh, conversations of Malachi have moved our hearts and minds forward. Last week when we talked about money, one of the challenges that God gave to his people was test me in this. Bring in the full tithe and see if I don't respond in the future to your act of obedience. Well, at this point in Malachi, everything is pushing us forward. Every, uh, everything in the book has a, a flavor of anticipation to it. And today we're going to come back to a topic that has come up before in the book of Malachi. So if you're in, are you in Malachi? Did you find it all right? Yeah, okay. Uh, look with me at, at Malachi... Uh, hang on, all my technology needs to get wound up again. You wind an iPad, right? That's what you do. Huh? Uh, look with me back at Malachi chapter 2, just the end of it. And I, just by way of illustration here, I, I want to introduce this idea or let's remind us of what we've said before. Malachi 2.17 says this, You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, that conversation that we saw really at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 had all to do with the injustice that we see. If you remember that, we look out on this world and we see issues of great tragedy that causes our hearts to respond viscerally and, and in a weighty way to issues of injustice. Now, what we're going to look at today, just by way of that, that introduction, uh, is, is this accusation that the people brought against God uh, God called wearying. It tested his patience to accuse God of accepting and approving of the wicked in their day. And that was a real tension point that was answered by the coming of the messenger and the coming of Messiah, who will set things right and will restore justice to a world that is tainted and broken by sin and injustice. Well, we're going to see that same theme here, but it's going to show up in Malachi chapter 3. So flip one page forward to Malachi chapter 3. See, it's, it's one thing to ask God and to challenge God's character uh, over issues of injustice, but if we have an issue with how God addresses and the timing of how God addresses injustice, there's another question that is sort of the opposite side of the coin that all of us are going to wrestle with. No matter uh, if you're a Christian or not, if you're from a spiritually minded background or a religious background of something other than Christianity, you are, you are going to ask this question that shows up in this passage. So on one hand, in Malachi chapter 2, we look at the wickedness of the world and the injustice of the world and say, where is God and what is he doing? But the other side of that question and the other side of the coin, as it were, is to say, why isn't God responding to my obedience? Why is it that I'm doing what I know I ought to be doing and I'm not seeing the perks? It seems that while God is reticent to judge the wicked, he also is reticent to bless the obedient. What is the deal? 
And God's people are going to wrestle with this issue. Because this issue in Malachi 3, 13 to about 18 really provides the seedling that grows for the next 400 years and results in the Pharisees that Jesus confronts. See, the Pharisees in the New Testament believe that God wants our obedience, but he only wants it out here. He doesn't care about heart motivations. Just be obedient and do the things that you know you ought to do out here and life will work good for you. So that when Jesus comes on the scene and the Pharisees and the disciples even ask, who was, who sinned that this man who was born blind was born blind? And Jesus has to unravel that kind of thinking to say that this man isn't a sinner or somebody in his heritage isn't a sinner that resulted in his blindness. That's not the way God works. So when you come to Malachi 3, 13, you are going to deal with this and I am going to deal with this. We are going to ask at some point in our religious and spiritual life, is there any profit to obeying God? Is there any benefit to obedience? Have you ever done something you know you ought to have done, but you didn't get a new car? But your relationships didn't get magically easier? That you didn't get the raise that you thought you'd get, that you didn't get into, you didn't get the promotion you thought you'd get? What do you think? Can we draw a straight line from our obedience to blessing all the time in our lives? What do you think? I don't think we can. So let's pray and see really what this text does to give us the antidote to dealing with that temptation. Because for all of us, sooner or later, you're going to get to a point in your Christian life where you're going to ask, is it worth it? Is there any benefit? Is there any profit? And what this text does is give you the antidote that is going to help you battle that temptation, that conversation that lives in your heart. Do you have that in your heart? I have that in my heart. I have that that lives down here. And this passage is great for exposing it and giving us great encouragement when we face a temptation like that. All right, let's pray and see what God has to say. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, we uh, pray for our hearts that they might be receptive to the things that you would want to say to us, that you would shape us and challenge us, that you would expose the, maybe the expectations we have of you right now where you aren't doing what we thought you should do. You're not responding to our obedience in the way we thought that you should respond. And Father, I pray for uh, this text in our minds and hearts is that, that as a result of it, we would walk out of here more encouraged, uh, more faithful, more dependent, and more thankful for a God who knows us and loves us and walks with us through the peaks and valleys of this life. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, Malachi 3. Y'all there? Verse 13 is where we're going to be. And we're going to do verse 13 all the way down to about verse 18 uh, for our time here today. Look at 3.13 with me. Your words have been hard against me. Now, as I said, the words in Malachi 2.17 made God weary. They tested his patience. These words are harsh. These are confrontational words. This word is usually used uh, in the context of conversation of people who speak harshly or fiercely. They're used of words that overpower somebody else. So when God lays out the fact that there are conversations being had that are testing his patience in Malachi 2, here there are confrontational harsh words that are being spoken against God. 
If you've noticed throughout really the course of this book, uh, the people of Israel have lots of uh, unexamined assumptions about their relationship with God. Have you seen that? And they've come out through the prophetic word challenging the unspoken assumptions and conversations of their day. And one of the things that... Uh, I think is important for us to acknowledge as we move toward the end of this book is that all of us, you know, one of the things that I'm convinced about in preaching and teaching is a, uh, what's called sequential exposition, uh, is that we move verse by verse through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons we do that is just my inherent, not just because of my inherent lack of creativity, uh, but that I believe all of us in life are consistently drawing conclusions. We're consistently trying to make sense of our environment and our circumstances and our experiences. And inevitably, we reach conclusions. So you have conclusions that you have reached as a result of the family you grew up in, the job you have, the uh, experiences you've gone through, the peaks and valleys through the course of your life. So that you say things and I say things like, I'm never going to do that again. I will never trust them again because of the kinds of experiences that we have. And we do that spiritually. And inevitably, as a result of walking through this life and dealing with spiritual highs and lows, we tend to create a picture or an image of God. And what you've noticed throughout the course of this book that, is, that lives in the minds and hearts of Israel, and I think lives in the minds and hearts of anybody who has a relationship with God, is that they have unexamined, un, unexamined assumptions and expectations about God. We have ways that we think God ought to operate, and he doesn't do that, and we get frustrated. So throughout the course of the book, we've had this question and answer with God, right? Malachi has confronted his culture with uh, accusations like, God, you don't love us. Look at what's going on in our life. God, you're not... You're not worth worshiping. You're not worthy of bringing our best. God, we don't really need to hold you as high and honorable in our life. We can just bring any old thing. God, we don't need to keep our word. You need to keep your word. Our marriages and their purity and their faithfulness don't matter. God, uh, you don't, you're not faithful to us. And what you discover as you work through this book is that we all need confrontation by God's word to unearth the expectations and assumptions that we have about God. And if you're not doing that, you're not really able to synthesize the truth that God wants you to hear and grow into relationship with him the way he wants. Which is why you're never going to grow beyond your exposure to God's word. Because God's word, Hebrew says, is, is judging the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It's always confronting our theology. Does anybody in here have perfect theology? No, you, you have partial theology and so do I. Which means as I consistently wash my soul in the word of God, I'm confronted with assumptions and expectations that I have about God that may or may not be right. And here are these people asking this question. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And as is the case throughout the entire book of Malachi, these people don't agree. They think this assumption and perspective of God that we're about to see makes sense to them. And therefore, God says, your words are hard. Your words are harsh. And while as we go through the book of Malachi, I don't think anybody would, would read the book of Malachi and say, hey, these people have it together. Hey, their theology is solid, right? Right? 
We would all look at these questions that they're asking and saying, boy, these questions that they're asking don't seem to be uh, astute and wise questions. They seem to be confrontational questions, right? So none of us would read Malachi and go, Israel, way to go. But we have to wrestle with the fact that we all ask questions like that sometimes. And there's a reason these questions are in the book of Malachi because you ask these questions. I ask these questions. I wonder to myself, is God faithful? Will he show up? Does he see where I am? Does he know what I'm dealing with? And while we can't affirm how Israel has responded to God, it's important for us to acknowledge that these questions are here because God's word is meant to deal with those questions. They're meant to unearth the expectations that you have so that we might worship authentically a God that has revealed himself in truth to us. So I haven't said that through the course of Malachi, but I think it's important that we just acknowledge we have questions like this. We wrestle with God in authentic and real ways, and to do it absent the Bible is very dangerous to us because it puts you in a position of incredible spiritual uh, insensitivity, which is why Malachi and the preacher word is so important. So here are the people, again, asking another question that I think we all knew they would ask. They don't think their words are harsh against God. They think they're right in their opinion and perspective of the day. But God says their words is harsh, are harsh, and they respond with, well, how have we spoken against you? So let's see what they have to say. Verse 14. You have said, and this really serves as a summary statement to all that is going to follow, because you're going to see a summary statement followed by certain behaviors that they think should get God's attention. But the summary statement shows up here in verse 14. You've said it's vain to serve God. It's different than the word in Ecclesiastes that, that starts with, uh, that says vanity of vanity, all is vanity. This is a word that... Uh, has something to, it essentially means, that word in Ecclesiastes means a breath. It's temporal, it's ephemeral, it lasts as long as your breath on a winter morning. You can't use with it, you can't build on it, there's nothing to it, it's short term. But this word is different in that this word is connected to labor that is fruitless. It's you've put in the work, you've tried, you've expended the energy, You've worked out and you're not seeing the results. You've been eating right and nothing's happening. It's vain. That's why it's vain to work out. Did you know that? <laughs> so these people, their accusation of God is right up front. Isn't it? it's, it's confrontational with God. It's vain to serve God. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with God like that. I don't know how honest you have been in your Christian life. Have you ever been at the spot where you've hit the wall and have been like, I've been serving, I've been working, I've been praying, I've been giving, I've been dying to self pretty much. And it doesn't feel like I'm getting recompensed. It doesn't feel like things are moving in my direction. It seems like I'm trying to be faithful, but it doesn't feel like God is holding up his end of the bargain. And that tension and that question is very revealing for the kind of relationship we believe to have with God, isn't it? So here are the people of Israel. It's vain to serve God. We've served God. We've been trying. And this has been a theme throughout the book of Malachi. They think they're doing well, don't they? They're giving the sacrifices. The priests are doing what they're supposed to. They've got the altar and the temple, the sacrifices, the practices, all the things that they're doing. It doesn't seem like God is 
holding up his end of the bargain. It is vain to serve God. So if in Malachi chapter 2 they accuse God of failing to address wickedness in an appropriate way, in a timely way, what's the concern here on the other side of the coin? Well, it's that God hasn't honored and God hasn't followed through and that God hasn't seen my obedience and responded quick enough. So just as we want God to exercise justice upon the wicked immediately, we also have a tendency to want God to reward our obedience quickly, don't we? I want to obey and receive blessing the next day. So these people say, it's vain to serve God. Now watch how the remainder of the verse goes. Here are the things that they have done. They do two particular things, it seems, but they ask this question. They say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge? The charge word has to do with um, essentially the law obligations. It's the relationship with God where God has revealed himself to us. He's given us his truth. He's given us his law. And therefore, we understand how things ought to work. We know the things we ought to do. These people, Israel, are not confused on what God has said. They're not confused about the things that they should be doing. In fact, lots of them seem to be doing the things that they think they ought to do. While not well not authentically, not with a heart of worship, but they're going through the motions. But they ask this question, what is the prophet? Now, that is an, that's an incredible question. It's an incredible question because of the word that they use. When they ask the word, when they say, what is the prophet? Prophet primarily in the Old Testament is, is translated not as just blessing. It's consistently translated as illicit or unjust gain. It's the gain that you would get by working the system of the world. By stepping on others to get ahead. By lying on your resume. By taking a bribe to get ahead in the work that you are doing. Here's how it's translated. If you remember the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel is about Samuel the prophet who comes into a religious and cultural time in which Eli the priest and his sons are wicked. They're serving at the temple. And this is what 1 Samuel 8 says about his sons. His sons didn't walk in his ways, but they turned aside after this word, prophet. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Here's how Jeremiah 6 uses a word similarly. Jeremiah 6 says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. So while we're a little bit surprised that unjust and illicit gain will be put right next to the obedience of God's law, it exposes a kind of thinking in this culture that I should obey and I should see blessing in worldly ways. Now we just talked about last week that you should give to get the Camaro, remember that? That that was how that text in Malachi chapter 3 was twisted for prosperity giving. And it, the attitude is still here. The attitude is that I obey, I do what's right, and God honors my obedience with blessing. He honors my obedience, not merely with blessing, not merely with crops coming up, but that I should get the same kind of success that those in the world do. 
I should get the same kind of influence, finances, uh, relationships, homes, cars, all the thing that the world would declare as obedient, as, as, I'm sorry, everything the world would declare as evidence of my blessedness should be put right next to my obedience with God. So what is the profit? What is the profit of keeping our charge? You ever, you ever wanted, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this, maybe you are more holy than me. Maybe uh, you've, had, you, you've wanted to do something you knew was wrong. You wanted to let them have it. You wanted to fill in the blank, your sin of choice. And you didn't. And you thought, I had victory over temptation. I did what I knew was the right thing to do. Amen. And then on the other side of it, you went, I don't know if that was worth it. I mean, the relationship. I, I prayed and I sought God and I was gentle in my response and the relationship didn't go the way it was supposed to. But I was, sac- I was sacrificial. I was generous. I did the thing that I knew was right before the Lord and nobody saw it and it didn't matter. You ever, have you, anybody else? You, you, you kind of wrestle with yourself and you're kind of asking like, I'm not sure. I thought I was obedient. And I thought there would be some feedback here in this feedback loop between me and God. But there really wasn't. Well, that's where these people are. So they've tried obedience to God's charge and that doesn't seem to be producing profit. Let's see what else they try. Look at the remainder of the verse. Of walk, or, or what's the profit of us walking and mourning before the Lord of hosts? We try to obedience to things we know we ought to do. Maybe God wants more demonstrations of religious piety. Maybe I need to weep over my sin more. Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to be more sad. I should be more emotionally broken up about my sins. So I'm, I'm going to get myself all wound up spiritually. I'm going to be really, really, really sad. And God's going to see because God cares about those who mourn, right? God's near to the brokenhearted. I know what I'll do. I'll make sure that I come twice a week to God's temple. I'll give multiple sacrifices. I'll look real sad, uh, mourning, ashes, sackcloth. I'll do the whole thing. And God's got to respond to my sadness. But it doesn't seem that that's working either. There's not a lot of profit to this either. Why are we walking in mourning? Now, whether they're mourning over their sin or whether they're just going through the motions, either way, they're looking at their relationship with God as quid pro quo. We put in the coins of obedience and mourning and repentance, and we wait for the gift to drop out of the machine. Therefore, we have a good relationship with God. And frankly, most every world religion operates like this. Do these things, get these blessings. Do these things, get peace. Do these things, get success. Do these things, get heaven. That's how they all operate. So you can understand how God's people would wrestle with the fact that God is not only not addressing the injustice that they ought to see handled in their community, in their society, but it also doesn't seem like he's handling the, uh, and blessing the obedient and the righteous in the way that they ought to be recognized. And now... Verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed. The arrogant are those with no eye or mind toward God. They are essentially atheistic in their approach to life. They believe that life works according to their ability, strength, and power to work the systems of this world in their favor. They don't care about morality. They don't care about right and wrong. They're only out to succeed. 
Their whole ambition is to do right and by doing right to attain everything that they can in this life. Whether by legalism or whether by morality, whether by uh, injustice and oppression, no matter what the pathway is, they decide to live life on their terms. And now this person in this society is being watched by the righteous of the day, being watched by God's covenant people. And they're looking at them and go, they're saying, that's the way to live life. That person over there who doesn't care about God's laws, doesn't care about God's rules, he never comes to church, he's not sad about anything, he prays about nothing, he's a bully at work, he's a bully in his relationships, it doesn't matter because God's not addressing him and rather he's getting ahead in life. He's getting all the success and all the blessing and all the acclaim of living a life that is atheistic in its approach. And now we, as God's people, are looking out on that person and going, I, he's blessed. The world works in his favor. Do you have, can you name people? I mean, don't point if they're in here. <laughs> but can you think of people that have run through your mind that you go, it doesn't, it sure seems like they're getting ahead. It sure seems like God doesn't see. It sure seems like arrogance profits. He goes on, evildoers, evildoers not only prosper, which is the word to build up. Remember the beginning of Malachi where he said, Edom may say, we will rebuild. It's this word here, we will build up. And God says, I, but I will tear down. The evildoers not only prosper, their lives build up. They get the raise, they make partner, they do, they, they have success. But they put God to the test and they escape. Now last week it was test me and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven for you who are willing to authentically obey and tithe of your produce. But these people test God in an illicit way. They're disobedient and there aren't any consequences. So do you feel the tension in a passage like this? You feel the, the pressure that lives at the kind of, you know, the, the level of our souls to go, if disobedience pays, if disobedience results in blessing, and obedience doesn't, why obey? Why obey if I don't get the blessing? Why obey if I don't get the success? Why obey if there aren't any consequential, concomitant acknowledgments from God for what I'm doing? Keep your finger in Malachi there just for a minute. And turn back to Psalm 73. I want you to see this and just feel the, the weight of this. Because this is no small topic in the scriptures. Psalm 73. And I want you to see how, how the psalmist wrestles with this idea in his day. This is Asaph. Probably six, eight hundred years before Malachi writes about it. But, but this, lives, this lives in 2023 in our culture. This lives in Malachi's day. This lives in Asaph's day. We look at life and ask ourselves, where is God and why doesn't he bless the obedient? Psalm 73, truly God is, this is verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Amen? 
For they've got no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't do CrossFit. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Watch this. Watch how he interprets the success of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You ever prayed prayers like that? You ever had conversations with God like that? So the question is, come back to Malachi here. How do we defeat that temptation? How does God gird our hearts and give us the strength to be able to handle a temptation that is so pervasive in our minds and hearts? Because it's everywhere, guys. Like, you won't go this week without asking the seedling of questions like that, right? And this is a, this is a real struggle. And I want to show you how Malachi um, shows us the way out of that rut. Because can your mind and heart get into a rut like that? And you're going to ask, you, how can I get out of this rut? How is it that I am actually going to succeed at fighting and defeating a temptation that, uh, for me to believe and reach conclusions merely on what I see? I'm going to need something deeper. I'm going to need something stronger than my perception of life, my perception of how successful the wicked are, my perception of feeling like it's vain to serve God. So how is God going to do that? How is Malachi going to address a very real temptation, a very real experience for all of us? And what he's going to do is show, it shows up here in verses 16, 17, and 18. And in verse 16, I believe, you can test me in this and read through Malachi on your own, but I believe this is the single verse in the entire book that is a description, not dialogue. And I'll tell you why that matters in just a second. But it's as if verse 16 is there for Malachi to speak in off the sideline. It's been primarily the people and God. The people and God, right? This conversation going back and forth. And in verse 16, Malachi does something that's so encouraging. It's so helpful in the way that we're going to battle this temptation. And it's a description of how the people in Malachi's day who do fear the Lord who do love him and reverence him, how they're going to respond to this. Because church, you're going to have to respond to this. We're going to have to respond to this. And we're going to have to do it together as a community. Because this temptation is perhaps the most isolating temptation in all of life. Is to throw up your hands and go, I'm doing everything I know to do. I think I'm being obedient. I'm trying to do what God wants, but I'm not getting the blessing. And it's almost that temptation when you're in that spot is almost impenetrable to anybody else's advice. Do you know that? 
Because your heart is going to get twisted and hard and your expectations of God are going to get exposed and you're going to feel like God's not holding up his end of the bargain and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. So watch the antidote. Watch what God gives us here. Everything from this point on in the story, this has been a back and forth conversation, everything from this point on and really to the end of the book next week is going to be future. We saw that a little bit in giving, didn't we? Bring in the tithe and see if I won't do something in the future. Take a risk on me and my character. But in this passage and really all through the end of the book, everything is going to lean the future. So in part, one of the ways that you handle a temptation so viscerally difficult as this is to look into the future. But before we get to that, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. There's one other thing that God gives you to battle that temptation. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord. Now, I want you to see, just look at the conversation that's been happening in this passage up to this point. Notice the things that the people have said. It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of us keeping his charge? Or of walking and mourning as before the Lord. You'll notice that their accusation against God is all things that they're doing out here. They're all behaviors out here that they think God sees and that God should pay attention to. And because their behaviors aren't being honored in the way that they think they ought to be, they've got a real issue with serving God. But the people who respond to God rightly, and it's not quite sure who these people are. Is it part of the folks who are in dialogue with God? Is it part of the people who are feeling this temptation? Is it uh, a a subset within the larger group of the people of Israel? It's just not told to us. But it does tell you, like in Elijah's day, when Elijah wrestles with God on on Mount Carmel, and he's at the depths of depression thinking that he's the only faithful one left. He's done everything that he thought he's supposed to do. He's defeated Ahab and the prophets. Fire came down. He ran. Ahab and Jezebel are getting ready to kill him. And he goes and he argues and wrestles with God. And he said, God, I've been faithful and I'm the only one left. And God says, one, you need a sandwich. Two, you need a nap. But number three, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who haven't kissed Baal yet. I've reserved for myself people who haven't bowed the knee, who still fear and honor and worship me. And the people are right here. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. You know, one of the natural, one of the means of grace that God has given is the local body of Christ. Because you're going to wrestle with this temptation, whether it's today, tomorrow, the next week, six weeks, whenever it is, whether it's last week, whether you're wrestling with it today. One of the things that God has given us is the spiritual community of people who fear the Lord, whose hearts are tuned into responding to life out of a deep reverence for who he is. Because when you face this temptation, you are going to need more than friends, Let me explain. When you face a temptation so visceral and so difficult and so isolating as this, you're going to need more than just buddies because they're not going to understand that temptation. The people that you're going to need to be around are people who fear the Lord. 
are people who reverence and esteem the name of God. You are going to need to be around people who know this book, who are willing out of love to challenge the expectations that we might have of God that are wrong. And that's why God gives us a spiritual community to be a part of. You don't just need, like a lot of people come to our church and go, I want to get connected because I don't have any friends and I just moved here from Montana. I don't know, have anybody from Montana? I don't even know. Just, I picked a state. And they're going to come and they need spiritual community. They need spiritual relationship. But at some point, if all of your relationships just exist up here, right, we never really talk about, here's really how my heart is doing. Actually, I'm really mad at God because God's not really showing up in my life, in my career, in my marriage with my kids. I'm really anticipating God doing something. He didn't do something and therefore I'm crushed. I'm frustrated with God. He's not where I thought he'd be. You are going to need more than a buddy that goes to the beach with you. You're going to need someone to wrestle with, not to, literally. You're going to need somebody to pray with you. Do you know that? You're going to need someone to grab your hands and go, God is to be trusted. I have walked with him and he is to be feared and to be esteemed and I'm going to be with you in this journey. Amen? We've got some older Christians in this church who have been through the valleys and come out the other side and can speak to you and say, he's been faithful. Amen? So when this temptation grips your heart, the people who are going to be of great encouragement to you aren't going to be the people who are fickle, aren't going to be the people with their Bible closed. They're going to be the people who've walked with God, who fear God, and who are willing to take your hand and stand next to you and go, I know it feels like he's not watching. I know it feels like he doesn't see, but you hang in there, and we're going to see what God does with the situation. This is why the church is so powerful. This is why the church is so necessary. Because life is good when life is good, and I don't need the church all that much, but when you start wrestling with the lack of visible fruit from your obedience, you're gonna need people who've been there. So these people, those who fear the Lord, you see what they spoke to? I love, I just love that they speak to one another. Isn't that good? Isn't that, they go, brother, sister, Let's talk. And you, gosh, guys, you underestimate the opportunity for ministry that you have in this body by just being willing to go talk. By just being willing to pray with somebody. By just being willing to get a coffee. By just being able to ask, how's it going? No, no, not, not fine, 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 fine. Not that. That's not Christian community. It's how can I pray for you? Where's the, where's the valley right now? Where's the idol that God's ripping out of your heart and you don't like it all that much? How can I pray with you and get alongside you? How, are you seeing God act in your life? You're not? Can I pray for you that God would make evidence of his grace visible to you and visible to our community? Can we rehearse the goodness of God together because of how faithful he's been to us? Isn't that what it, Malachi's community needs? God, how do you love us? And they need theology, but they also need a buddy. They need a friend with them. They need somebody to challenge their assumptions, challenge their expectations, to challenge the conclusions that they've drawn by merely looking at life on their terms. So they speak to one another and watch how God responds. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Amen? Isn't that good news? 
I was reading through the Psalms. I read through the Psalms most every morning, and some, some of them. And I came across this theme as I was reading, where it was, it was like screaming off the page that God hears prayer. I know that's a stunning theological assessment from your pastor. But it's one of those, it is one of those things that I just needed to hear. I just needed that assurance, that reminder, that like, hey, when you pray to him, it was from Psalm 10, actually. Here's what Psalm 10 says. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Isn't that good news? That when I don't understand God, he still hears me. That when I have poor expectations of God and wrestle with him through his word that he still hears me. Isn't it good news to say that when you pray with somebody else, you can be confident that God hears those prayers? And here are these people who fear God. God, we're not going to believe what our eyes say, what our heart feels. We're going to fear you. We're going to talk to one another. And God acts. And what he does is to pay attention and to hear them. And look what he does. The picture is of a king who's sitting before his royal court. And he tells this guy over here, whatever his name is, Reggie. And he tells Reggie, get the book and we're going to write these people down. We're going to take a catalog of the thoughts and opinions and perspectives that they had that have wrestled with my greatness and they have feared me and I'm going to write them down. See, God knows where you are. He knows that when we face this temptation and we wrestle with it in the community of others who fear the Lord, that he takes note and he knows them by name. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Why is that mentioned? Why is fearing the Lord mentioned twice? Because it's the essence of what it means to walk with God. It's the essence of what it means for God to do things in response to people not who have checked all the boxes, but who, God, who confess, God, you're God and I am not. And all I am going to do is cling to the fact that your name is to be esteemed. You are the most important thing in my life and heart. And God, I may not understand it. I may be believing my eyes and believing my feelings. But God, I need friends who are willing to esteem your name with me. To fear the Lord together with me. And God says, I see you. I know where you are. I'm writing your name down. Now watch this. So the people are saying... There's no profit to serve God because I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm being obedient, but look at all the arrogant. They're succeeding. They're doing well. They're, they're, they're winning at life. And God says the antidote to this temptation is a community that fears the Lord, a community that's willing to talk to one another about these things, a community that's shoulder to shoulder in esteeming my name and putting my glory and my name, my revealed name, the, the theology of who I am as front and center in their life. And God says, those people I write down, those people I take special account of, those people I know by name. And this section closes in 17 and 18. Watch the promise. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now you almost expect, with their bad theology, that God says, they shall have something. 
They shall obtain something. They shall get something. But the promise that comes from God is not a thing to obtain according to the world's standards. It's not profit by the world's measure. But rather the promise of those who fear his name, who speak to one another, who are written down and known by God is a particular status. It's a particular relationship that God says, they'll be mine. Says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up, excuse me, my treasured possession. That treasured possession is used at the very beginning of the corporate relationship between God and his people when they come out of Egypt. The very first mention of it is in Exodus 19. It says that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for the earth is mine. God says, when you fear me, when you esteem my name, you enter into a special kind of intimate relationship with me. You have a special status. And this status protects you from what is to come. Now, we've seen judgment that is to come already in this book in Malachi chapter 3 when the messenger of the covenant, the one who is going to come and be the refiner, who's going to work with God's people like fire with judgment. But this special relationship of fearing the God and esteeming his name not only gives you special status with God, you enter into a kind of intimacy and relationship with God that you can't get merely through checking the boxes of external obedience. But from heartfelt dependence, heartfelt respect, heartfelt esteem of his name, we enter into a status of relationship with God that says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That when judgment falls, I will treat you like a son, not like an outsider. I will treat you as one of the family. I will treat you as one who is able to endure the judgment that is to come because you are rightly related to me. Then, verse 18, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who what? The one who serves God. What is the accusation? It's vain to serve God. Once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So it looks like when I step out into the world on Monday morning, there's no distinction between those who serve God and those who don't, right? You feel that? It doesn't seem like the righteous get ahead. It seems like the arrogant and the wicked does, but God says there's coming a day when those who are in right relationship with me will be spared from the judgment of the arrogant, will be spared from the judgment of the wicked. And on that day, it'll be totally clear and plain. There will be no more hypocrisy. There will be no more pretending. God will accurately judge the righteous and accurately judge the wicked. And those who come to God by dependence and faith upon who he is and how he has revealed himself will be spared from that judgment. And those who do not will be exposed and ultimately judged by God. See, why does this pull our perspective into the future? Because we all have a tendency to bring the future into the present and say, God, judge now. God, bless now. Honor now. I'm obedient, blessing. Obedient, success. And God says, you've got to fear me. You've got to trust that ultimate judgment is in my hand. You've got to trust that ultimate blessing is in my hand. You've got to trust that there's coming a day when I will winnow the people. 
and you will see the righteous, and you will see the wicked. Now, I wrestled with how to close this talk, as I do kind of every week. That's kind of a perpetual pastor's challenge. How do you close this? How do you finish this message? What do I do? Uh, and I thought, you know, you could go to the, the myriad of places in the New Testament that talk about, uh, you know, by Matthew 16, where Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and not forfeit his soul? Right? You could go to Matthew chapter 6 that talks about the giving and the praying and fasting that aren't to be done with an eye toward human achievement and accolades, but are be done so that your heavenly Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. You could go to the books that are opened at the end of Revelation chapter 22. The books for the righteous, the Lamb's book of life, and the books of the wicked where all of the account of their life is written down. But I thought, I think we should come back to Psalm 73 because Psalm 73 captures Malachi chapter 3 in a very poetic way that I think stokes the heart of our affection for who we really want to be, for what we know Christianity is really about. See, Christianity is not really about going through a mechanism and a machine of putting in our coins of obedience and ultimately receiving blessing and good fruit. The blessing of Christianity is not worldly outcomes according to worldly standards, according to worldly wealth. The blessing of Christianity shows up at the end of Psalm 73. Look with me again at Psalm 73. If you look, we stopped at verse 14. And if you look at verse 15 through about verse 22, the psalmist confesses how difficult this was for his spiritual life. So much so that he's like, I was like an animal before you. I was so irrational. And for any of us who've gone through this kind of temptation and struggled with it, we feel almost animalistic, don't we? That we discover anger and sadness and fear and frustration in our hearts that maybe we didn't experience before. Because we thought God ought to be different. He ought to honor my obedience. And sometimes it just makes us mad and it makes us crazy. But the joy of Christianity is not necessarily that you would get something. And that's what the psalmist says. So I want you to see verse 23 in Psalm 73. And show you exactly basically what Malachi says. Malachi 3 said, they shall be mine. That there will be a new kind of relationship, a new kind of status where I will know you intimately and I will be able to be your God and you will be my people. And here's how the psalmist puts it. Verse 22 says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Isn't that good news when you wrestle? That the status of your relationship with God isn't based upon your relative emotional health at the time. Amen. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What's the temptation for the people in Malachi's day? There's no prophet. There's something on earth that I need. There's something on earth that I want. There's some kind of recognition and influence that I demand. But the psalmist says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may come to the end of my emotional rope, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be near God. 
Don't miss that. For me, I may not have the worldly success, influence, acclaim, money, or any of the list of things that I think I want. But what's good for the psalmist is that he's near God. For me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, this is the foundation of a church who fears the Lord. That he alone is our refuge. He only is the place where we can share these concerns and share these temptations with our heart. And the community of faith that fears his name becomes a great antidote to the temptations that you and I fear. Because the greatest thing for you is not that you get some success, get something, get some place, get some blessing in this world. The greatest promise of Christianity is that you get God. Amen? That's what we get. And esteeming and fearing his name is the purpose of our community, that we might be able to help one another through those hills and valleys to be the people that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, we confess how visceral this temptation is that we face. We acknowledge it, Father. I acknowledge it that there are times when I feel like you are not holding up your end of the bargain. And for that, Father, I ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we misrepresent the way we think our lives ought to go. Father, I pray that you would, for those in this room who feel like they don't have that kind of friend who fears the Lord, that kind of person who they can share their heart with, that kind of person who's, who's in a community with them where they can speak to one another, that that would happen as a result of them being in Citadel Square, that there would be a people who'd be willing to come alongside to give encouragement, to stoke the fires of faith, to esteem your name, and that you would find us faithful as we journey through uh, fighting against the ways in which our feelings and our perspectives cause us to draw conclusions that are not reflective of who you are. So help us to esteem your name. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.